All right. Uh, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And as usual, this is a Tuesday episode. So with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hey, how's it going? Good. Bradley, this is a big week for you uh, for one big, big reason. Well, yeah. last week was a big week. We're going to talk about that in a second. Sure. But this week is also the opening of the bookstore. It is. I went by um, there yesterday. P&T Knitwear is yep. opening on Orchard Street later this week. Yep. Um, and you went by there yesterday. And you just told me this, so I know. But it was the first time you'd been there since yeah. you signed the lease. Yeah. So it's funny. I, while it, it's a little weird because... For most of my work, it's about coming up with some idea and then being able to envision what it could be and right. then executing it, right? I completely lack that skill when it comes to physical spaces. Yeah. Like I have, the, I have no ability to look at a, at a, site, a construction site or a room and say, oh, here's what it will look like. Right. But especially when I'm the one writing all the checks, I do know how much money I'm spending. Um, and so I've learned a couple of times now, a, a construction project we did upstate for our house or, or for this, is that I, I kind of stay away for the vast majority of it simply because... You're not adding value. I'm adding value, and I'll just get upset because I'll be like, we just spent all this money, and there's a big pile of dirt. And right. like, I understand intellectually that's not what it's going to be, but I have a hard time for some reason getting there. So wait, I want... I, 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 the story that I like about the house that you guys built a few years ago upstate is that you you hired the architect, you approved the plans, and then you literally did not show up at all until it was done. Is that right? Yeah, Harper went there a couple of times. Right, but you not. did not go at all. Yeah. And and that worked for you, right, as an approach? Yeah, yeah, it did. And you're happy with it? House, you've been there. It's yeah, great. no, it's great. I, yeah. I mean, I'm happy with it. I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> because, like, that's that's so – in some ways, that's not your personality, right? But, but, you right? know, it also, it's not a personality at all, but in some ways – it's nice to be able to let go of something, right? Right, because it's so have it be frequently else's not my right. way of doing things that you know it's kind of nice in a way. Okay, um, my intention with this episode was not to bury the lead, but now I've just sort of buried it by asking about the bookstore first, because I just want to bring to your attention. I think you know of it, but um, I read this pretty interesting article in TechCrunch last week. I just want to oh, read yeah? the top part of the story okay. and just get your reaction to it. So I, what it said here was Tusk Venture Partners, the now six-year-old New York-based early-stage venture firm co-founded by long-term political strategist Bradley Tusk and former Blackstone director Jordan Knopf, has closed its third fund with $140 million in capital commitments. That's double the $70 million that the outfit raised for the second flagship fund, which closed in late 2019. 19, Okay, so I just read you the story in TechCrunch. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think I saw it. Yeah, you saw it. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations, first Thank of all. You. That's amazing news. Yeah. And um, here's what it means to me. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. What does it mean I, to I you, Bradley? Okay. So it, it's when Jordan and I came up with this idea six, seven years ago now, it was really just a concept, right? Basically, what we believed was if you truly understood regulation and you could do something about it, it would make you a better investor, but how much better, we really had no idea. 10%, 20%, 30%, and we had to go raise our first fund right. without really having any ability to say, here's what it's going to be, other than here's our idea. Right. And then on top of that, you know, Jordan, while he had a big job at Blackstone, wasn't in a traditional venture background. And how did you know Jordan? Like, what was uh, your we met through him? a mutual friend okay. and uh, just kind of hit it talking, off. And right. He had been looking to... He was running Blackstone's internal venture fund at the time. He was looking to kind of create his own fund. Uh -huh. He, he wants something really differentiated. Right. Um, I had kind of over time realized that this nexus of tech and politics was a lot deeper than I had realized. Right. And so when we started talking about it, we both realized that we wanted to pursue the same thing. Right. So, but um, 
it was very vague and up in the air. And obviously, LPs, you know, one of this political guy like me walks in, like, like you know, they all say they want something different. They're like, not that different, man. <laughs> right, right. Um, Where's the white bread? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, look, now that we're uh, investing out of our third fund, we're about a third invested out of it so far, a little less. Um, we've been able to double the fund size. So fund one was $35 million, fund two was $70 million, fund three is $140 million. Um, and I think we've kind of proven that our idea was right. You know, if, I can't talk about our returns because there's we're in the middle of raising a different fund, and, and the SEC has mandates on not being able to talk about your performance while you're in the middle of fundraising, of which we're always in the middle of fundraising. Right. But the fact that we're able to keep doubling our fund size is probably a pretty good indication of we're doing well. You're doing okay, right. And, you know, a few things. One is you could look at the companies that we've invested in the exit we've, we've had. So FanDuel, Lemonade, Coinbase, Roman, I mean, Bird until it fucking went to shit. Alma, <laughs> Wheel, Circle, you know, like there's there's so many, a lot, right? Yeah. And so one is we're getting access to really great deals and even to lead really great deals. So in Fund One, we just co-invested. It was, right. a, it was a small amount of money and we really weren't in a position to who would let us lead their round unless right. it was a company that was insanely desperate. Um, <laughs> Were there any? <laughs> uh, we, if anyone was that desperate, we knew to stay away from them. <laughs> so, but Fund 1 did really, really well. And um, so for Fund 2, when we doubled the fund size, it's like, oh, you know, we could lead a couple of deals. We don't have enough money right. to lead a lot of deals. And then the question became, would so the question before Fund 1 was, would people want us to invest at all? Right, right. And then I think after we were able to prove the value proposition and FanDuel saw us help solve their, you know, legalized daily fantasy sports betting and right. Roma saw us help legalize digital prescriptions and Bird saw us help legalize electric scooters and Lemonade and their licenses and so on, the value proposition became clear, mm -hmm. at least to founders and some other VCs, right, even if it hadn't kind of gotten beyond that. And so for Fund 2, we said, let's try to lead a few deals. And we ended up leading five of the 19 investments we made. And they've all gone on to subsequent rounds of financing. Uh, one is already a unicorn. One is just about there. So um, so I, I think that you know we've now kind of proven out that, like, look, regulation is very important to technology, right? I right. would imagine anyone listening to this podcast has to think that, because otherwise, why would you listen to this podcast, right? right? So I think that we have helped establish that point broadly among founders, the venture capital community, institutional investors, media, um, people on the political side as well. So that's number one. Number two is, you know, what we had to do was particularly hard, and this is, you know, one of the reasons why um, Michaela Balderson just became a, a partner at our fund, is we not only had to build this specific type of fund in a niche that was new, mm -hmm. we had to create the market, right? Because at the end of the day, there was no concept of like the fund that does the regulatory stuff, right? So for people to know that we existed, for companies to want to take our money, for us to get deal you really flow, need to get everything the story else. Out there. Yeah. So, you know, the amount of work we did on, proactively on the comm side, whether it was, you know, giving speeches or going on TV or hosting podcasts or going on podcasts or writing the fixer or writing my columns or speaking to all it's kinds all of other schools. It's all directed to this point, right? Yeah, it's all directed to this point. And look, the other things we do also play into it. It's so like mobile voting fits into it nicely when we get, you know, attention for that. Um, Sometimes the strategy stuff helps, sometimes it hurts. I think the Yang stuff probably did more harm than good in terms of reputationally. Um, but nonetheless, it just kind of keeps increasing brand and, and, and name ID. Well, but it also shows your, you know, I mean, part of the firm's identity is risk-taking, right? Not every bet's the right yeah, bet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so it's like, it's like that's the nature of the yeah. business. So, and, and look, that's also the, uh, the market we created and the reputation we built is why I was able to raise a SPAC pretty easily because my name was known enough to the market that people are like, yes, I'll bet on this guy. 
So anyway, the, the point to me is we not only created a new type of fund, we created a new type of market, very, very niche, to be clear, but, right. but still within venture capital. That's really hard to do, but I think we've gotten people to take the notion of regulation more seriously. Uh, we are now a fund where we lead more than half of the deals that we do, so that's right. kind of now up there you know, with, with what any major fund so does. So people are coming to you thinking like, wow, this is like my biggest problem, so if I can get Tusk, like, like the, the regulatory issue is right up there with- Yeah, I mean, it, it basically, look, the pitch is pretty easy, which is I say to them, this is your problem, which you, they have some awareness of, because if a founder is completely clueless as to their problem, I generally don't want to work with them in the first place because right. if, if they don't know what they don't know, they're not going to be good to work with. Right. Um, so they're aware to some extent. And that's why they either requested a meeting with us or, some, or took the meeting with us or whatever it is. And then I just say to them, look, here's your problem. Here's a solution. You can pay my consulting firm a million dollars a year to fix it for you if you want, or we'll do it for free and give you money. <laughs> and guess which one <laughs> tends to win out? <laughs> you know. So, um, so we really very rarely lose a deal as a result, and then we just kind of keep building up our capability. So on the comms and regulatory side, we just kind of keep adding more and more firepower so we can do more for our portfolio companies. You know, we just hired a, um, a CFO. The TechCrunch story, I think one of the things that was in there that maybe the we didn't mention is, in addition to Michaela Balderson, who's been on this podcast a bunch of times, becoming an operating partner, uh, a guy named Brad Welsh, who was at a fund called Morpheus Ventures in LA, came on as an investing partner, and a guy named Mike Lacerda, who was at BlackRock, BlackRock came on as our CFO. Um, so you know, we're just really building out the team and the capabilities, both on the investing side and on the platform side. Let me ask you just a few questions, and then we're going to get into the rest of the podcast, yeah. where we have a lot of politics stuff to talk about, too. But um, So six years in the venture capital business now. Mm -hmm. What's the most important thing you know now that you didn't know or weren't sure about when you started? Yeah, a couple of things. So one is um, when you raise money for a venture capital fund, right. turns out you want to look as much as like what they already know as mm -hmm. possible with a minor twist. I always thought like, and this is why I think raising the first fund, even second fund was, was pretty hard because I think I fucked it up completely because I was like, this is totally different. This is totally new. This is revolutionary because that's why I do things typically, right? right. Like why would I do them if other people have already done them? <laughs> right. And that turns out was not what they wanted to hear. Right. What they wanted to hear is we're exactly like everything you already with know. With just this little wrinkle. With this tiny <laughs> wrinkle, right? right? And it took me until fund three to figure that out. Um, and, and it's so just I a matter of emphasis, really. It's a kind of like... Yeah, it doesn't change the, the actual story of the fund or what we do, but it changes how you talk about it. So that that's, that's one thing. Two is... Um, Founders are really important. You know, when we're making early stage bets, effectively we're betting that this individual is capable of taking this vision and turning this into a, a billion or multi-billion dollar company. Um, and we've, you know, picked some founders really right and they've really succeeded and we've picked some wrong and they have failed. Um, but I think it, it, at the stage that we're investing in, you know, they're disproportionately important. And then also the partnerships with them going forward, some of our best references to other startups, or even some of our founders from our portfolio companies are now investors in our fund, right? So like that relationship um, is really, really critical. And I guess the third, and I guess I knew this already because it's what I did for a living before, but if you can effectively use the media and really build and drive a reputation and as, for having expertise in something and be easy to work with for reporters, if you can do all of that, they will keep coming to the well over and over again. And the more you do that, and the more your name gets out there, the, it, there really is a network effect where you hit a point where all of a sudden, deals are really flowing in because right. they're like, oh, I have a regulatory problem, they're the regulatory guys. Right. So, um, it, it, you know, look, 
my first couple of jobs you know, ever were in communications, so obviously I was familiar with this concept. But to see it work out completely the same way in venture capital was interesting. Is there a pattern to the ones that haven't worked out where you realize like, oh, I fall for this? Or yeah, this well, is here, like here's one thing at least I know that I'm, I'm guilty of and I'm trying to learn from it is sometimes I see what I want to see in a company instead right. of what's there. So sometimes I fall in love with a concept right. and I look for a company that can execute my concept. And then you'll just... And I'll see, I'll kind of give them too much credit and latitude, right. and they don't really deserve that. And typically, you know, that that's proven out. And Jordan tries to talk you out of that often? Sometimes, but sometimes not. Like, you right. know, the, the company that we're incubating in the esports space, uh, you know, wagering space, is we've made bets, in, small bets in companies and funds one and two. Mm-hmm. And I think Jordan, he probably knew that both of the investments weren't that great, but his view was that, like, our thesis was really good, right. so, and so unique, it's chance, so it was kind right. of worth trying. Right. And we ended up actually getting our money back from from both of those. Um, we didn't make money on it, but we didn't, we didn't lose either. And then we realized we had to incubate it because we're like, look, if no one else is going to do this thing, um, I keep seeing things that aren't real, so let's just build it ourselves. Right. Um, we're sitting here in Park Avenue South. You're a New York guy. How would you assess the health of New York City as a tech hub today? You know, a lot better than it was uh, six months ago, right, mm-hmm. in that – we have a mayor now, Eric Adams, who is very pro-tech, very pro-innovation, and is really willing to put uh, his effort and his time and his budget to really try to build the tech community here. So we had these kind of big waves, right? So you had Mike Bloomberg from 2001 to 2013, who is a tech entrepreneur, right, and desperately wanted to build that sector in the city, in part because, you know, as someone who really understands the economy better than most people, he looked at it and said, look, we have a huge dependence on finance and tourism and either one of those can go sideways for different reasons whether it's you know after 9-11 or COVID on tourism or after 2008 on finance we need more diversity in our economy and tech became a really obvious place to do that so you had Bloomberg proactively building out a tech sector culminating in the creation of the Cornell Technion campus on, on Roosevelt mm-hmm. Island you know de Blasio taking it the other direction and just making New York as hostile as possible to tech companies saying we don't want you here we think you're bad because you're from Silicon Valley. You must be evil. We do everything we can to put you out of business. Um, and then now we have a mayor again in Adams who, look, he's not a tech entrepreneur like Bloomberg, but he genuinely cares about this stuff. And by the way, it's not just that he said it when he's running for mayor. I saw this with him for years, right? When we were fighting de Blasio with Uber, he was one of our first supporters right? because um, he, he got it. So, um, so I have to say, you know, from that perspective, I'm happy in the sense that I think we now have the right leadership again at City Hall, which is a big part of it. Um, you know, on top of that, there are venture funds. You know, New York has been growing as a venture ecosystem. So obviously, you know, it's always been something of one. Right. But, you know, funds like a Union Square Venture are now like legendary funds. And funds like ours go from the sort of this concept to now third fund, you know, starting to have a decent amount of capital under management. Um, so you're seeing that both with funds and then that creates even more ability to build startups here in New York. And so, yeah, I think, you know, overall, we're doing pretty good. Two more quick questions on this, and then we're going to get to the other stuff. Yeah. Um, are startups getting smarter politically outside of the ones that you work with? Regulators are definitely getting smarter politically. Okay. So here was my experience. When I did Uber, um, for better and for worse, the regulators just did not take us seriously. They would not give us a time of day. They thought you were just going to fail. And Yeah, just some little pipsqueak company not listening to them. And... On one hand, it made the work harder, but on the other hand, it's how we won because we took everyone by surprise. 
right, all of a sudden we come up with this overwhelming show of political support from actual real people and everyone backs down, and literally in every single market in this country. By the time we got to Bird seven, eight years later, um, the regulars were much more sophisticated. So they w I wasn't going to sneak up on them again. However, at the same time, whereas before they were totally dismissive, this time they're like, okay, we get that we have to take you guys seriously because we know if nothing else, the political harm that will come to us and to our boss, who's the person who appointed us, and then we're going to get screamed at constantly, right? And so, and you know, I, I think it was a more collaborative process and, and worked pretty well. So regulators are definitely uh, more sophisticated. Um, yeah, I would say this. When I started doing this, my typical conversation with a founder would be something like, you know, that he, he or she, but typically he would say to me, no, no, you don't understand. I went to Stanford. I was in Y Combinator. John Doerr's on my board. And when those stupid regulators see how smart I am, they're going to do whatever I want. Um, <laughs> and I have to explain, like, politics doesn't work like that, dude. Right, they um, don't care about any I of that. I hear that much less these days. Right. And um, uh, now that the firm has some scale yeah. or some size, um, are you seeing any copycats yet? Someone else trying to do no, what you No, I mean, sort of. You hear about people on two sides of, of the ledger. So one would be venture funds trying to build out political arms. Andrew mm -hmm. Tsiharowitz most notably tried to do this. It failed. And I think the reason why is they hired incredibly impressive people, the former general counsel of Facebook, someone on the National Security Council, all, all this stuff. However, you know, most tech regulation is won through knife fights in city council, not through like speeches at the National Press Club and white papers from the Brookings Institute, right? And they didn't get that at all. You're not a white paper at the Brookings Institute kind of not guy, really, are you? No. no. <laughs> um, so um, I think it has to be in your DNA for right. this to really work. So it really kind of has to come from the political side. And on the political side, yeah, look, people come to me for actually advice to sort of how do I compete with you? And I'm actually happy to tell them because the reality is here's what had to happen for me, right? I had to have the dual experiences of Uber, the single most known example of kind of a tech regulatory fight that won, and being my, Mike Bloomberg being my primary kind of political patron, and he's you know a tech entrepreneur and, and a legend himself. So I had both of those things, right? I had- But I, but have you said, right, Mike did not invest in your first no, fund, right? No, but, right. but, but his, the, the being connected to him, right. he's the one person in t politics that everyone in tech took seriously at the time. They still do, but he's, right. he's older now. Um, so that was still a really good credential. And then look, a few other things had to happen. I got lucky with Uber and then I made a lot of money quickly. I'm extremely risk friendly, so I was able to invest you know, close to eight figures in the fund before we saw a dollar back in any kind of revenue. Um, I, most people, when they build political consulting firms, the goal is to sell it to a WPP or an Omnicom or someone, you know, and that and kind of get out. And like, I've, I don't want to work for anybody else, so we've, we've, never, we've never done anything like that. So we've had the independence to do this. Um, yeah, so I mean, it just took a lot of weird shit to happen and then just a lot of perseverance. I mean, Jordan and I heard no for like a year and a half until we were able to raise our first fund and like, it was really fucking hard. Like we had to fight through a lot. And then the final thing is I have Jordan, right? So like the other day, someone came to me and I just said, look, before we get to all this stuff, I couldn't either raise this fund or run this fund without Jordan, right? The two of us together, our skill sets are so complementary that it really works. Doesn't mean we agree on every, every investment, but, but it, it works overall. Um, but if you're just a smart political person and you don't have a, a, you know, a true expert on deal structuring, deal sourcing, you know, working, ser serving on boards of companies, all that kind of stuff, you can't be successful. 
Um, okay, we're going to do what we were thought we were going to do in terms of the bulk of the conversation okay. as, a, as a little more of a lightning round. Sure. Um, I mean, there's a there's a bunch of great. This is it's mostly about politics, although there's we get into crypto a little bit. But yeah. we'll, we'll just go a little a little faster through this last uh, this last piece. Okay. Um, so, uh, will Eric Adams run for president in 2024? So there was an article in the New York Post yesterday about that. And, and look, it, there's a long-standing tradition of New York City mayors running for president. So John Lindsay, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Bloomberg, Bill People de must have mentioned, on this list, you don't have Koch, but Koch- He didn't run for president. No, I know he didn't run, but they, they, was it talked about you? He remember? ran for governor. Right. I don't know if president was ever, he might have almost been too New York in a way. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm sure there was some discussion about uh, okay, it. Okay, so you have Lindsay, Giuliani, Bloomberg, de Blasio. So bomb, New York bomb, City bomb. mayors, yeah, run for president all the time. They never get particularly far. Um, and what's interesting about it is it is, I would say, the best job in politics, or they call it the second hardest job in politics. But it's also a political dead end. Forget about any New York City mayor becoming president. No New York City mayor has ever become governor or senator. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you off. Yeah. Make the case— for Adams as a candidate, so he, so is it yeah, like sure. the anti the anti Bradley. Right, case? right. No, no. Here's here's why it's not at least a totally crazy. Which is this is assuming that Biden doesn't run. Right. right. I don't think anyone's going to primary him if he does. But assuming that Biden doesn't run, you've got a couple of sort of groups within the Democratic electorate. Right. You have moderates, you have progressives, and you have people of color who could fit into either bucket, but oftentimes are sort of seen as a separate demographic entirely. And then within that, you know, Latinos and African-Americans are obviously very different. And then within Latino, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans are very different than, say, Central Americans. But just to, to make it really simple, big picture, um, Biden won because you got people of color, especially African-Americans in South Carolina, uh, and moderates, right? Um, the progressives, you know, Sanders, whatever it is, were able to get pretty close by consolidating the progressive vote. Um, but not enough to get over the top. So the question is, who could appeal to enough of these two of these three groups to win? Because if you only appeal to one of them, it's not really enough, right? right? And so Eric Adams is a true moderate. He is a, definitely a Democrat, but he is a pro-law enforcement, pro-charter school, pro-technology, pro pro-business yeah. Democrat. Um, and at the same time, he's a man of color who actually also served as a police officer. So he really understands the different issues of criminal justice reform and, and policing. And so the question is, could someone like that be really appealing? Now, he won't be, if he runs, the only African-American candidate. Kamala Harris will run, and she's certainly African-American, sitting, sitting vice president. Cory Booker, I assume, runs again. Um, but there's a big difference, you know, between being mayor and doing all of this stuff and being a Washington politician and talking about all this stuff. However, that's where my logic fails. Because to me, I would always want the person who's actually done shit, like, as opposed to someone who just talks a lot, right? But if you look at the history of New York City mayors running for president, or by the way, no mayor's ever been president. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was the police commissioner and became president, but became governor before that. Um, so... I, just in the same way that I misread institutional LPs for a long time, um, I think the uh, I think the voters seem to want you know something uh, a little less authentic. What do you think Adams has to do in New York City? Is there anything specific? Yeah, crime. Crime. He, he, the city's got to be safe. If the city is not safe, not only will he not be able to run for president, his reelection is not guaranteed by any means. If the city is safe, then all of a sudden we are in a position 
where he is seen as having success. And look, there has been some recent data that's come out over the last week or so that shows that shootings are down a little bit. Now, it still feels terrible. There was a guy shot on the Q train yesterday in the middle of the day for no reason whatsoever. So yeah, it was a horrible story. It, it feels terrible, but, but the stats are getting a little bit better. So you know, if he can do that and he can help bring the economy back uh, from COVID, that's a pretty good record. Uh, there's a bill by the city council GOP leader, Joe Borelli, to create a task force to study the feasibility of Staten Island becoming an independent city. Uh, is this going to work? No. But what's interesting <laughs> about it is so this, this comes up every couple of years. Yeah. And Staten Island. As a New Yorker, I don't mind if Staten Island secedes. What, that, so do, I, do I've you? always had no. So I've had two views. One is they want to go. Let them go. Yeah. Right. Like, who cares? I mean, when was the last time you've been to Staten Island? Um I, I go every now and then because I'm curious about it, but then I'm always like bored when I get there and it's not what I. Yeah, I mean, there's, I, there's some stuff, but overall, well, like, when did you? When have you been? Man, it's been a while. There's I mean, some, there's I, some nice I, parks there, right? You want to work the parks? Yeah, and when I ran Mike's campaign, I obviously spent time on that. Right. You know, um, you know, and other times too, but but not a lot. But the point is. Most people who live in the other four boroughs don't spend that much time on Staten Island, right. so I don't think they would really feel the loss. And on the flip side, I think Staten Island residents who support secession are laboring under a bit of a misconception that their tax money is going to support people who are poor and, and you know lazy and don't deserve it, when in, in reality, A, the math doesn't bear that out, but B, a huge number of Staten Island residents are municipal workers. So that means, A, they're on the dole, too. And B, there is a law that says if you are a New York City employee if city of the city of New York, you have to live in the city of New York, right? There's an exception for cops and firefighters, but even that is enumerated to a couple of specific counties, which does not include Richmond County, which is Staten Island. So what I would say if I were, and I suggested this yesterday to City Hall, um, pushing back on that, say, you know what? We get it. But understand, the law requires us to do this. We're going to enforce the law, which means... Everyone in Staten Island who currently works for the city of New York will either lose their jobs or have to move to one of the other four boroughs. Either one of those things immediately wrecks the tax base of Staten Island, which means they can't do this. Right. I'm guessing those people vote, too. Um, uh, crypto. Yeah. Crypt, you, you wrote Crypto Winter. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, the entire uh, stock market's been collapsing over the past several months. Uh, crypto's taken a dive um, even more severely, I guess, depending, yeah. on, depending on which which piece of it you're looking at. Um, you are not overall pessimistic about the sector despite I, I'm, this. I'm not, and I, I guess here's why. So look, um, in a asset class based on concept and momentum, it's gonna be much more volatile than a, a company with an actual P&L, right? right? So one is you have to accept that volatility. So then the question becomes, and I think the people who hate crypto who are writing this week, oh, see, now crypto's finally dead, it, it, you have to believe that this is just tulips and such a passing fad that well tulips still exist all of right but but you know they're more recently <laughs> priced uh, all of the underlying factors that drove the creation of crypto don't really matter and that's not true right I mean there is people still distrust central institutions more than ever that distrust only grows every single day that's an inherent argument for crypto more and more applications keep being created on the blockchain that's an argument for crypto. Our whole world is moving online even more so, especially with the creation of Web3 and the metaverse. That's an argument for crypto. Um, and there's just tens of millions of people participating in crypto right now who obviously get something out of it and like it. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely not a, a fad in my view. Now, look, is it an asset class that is maybe less counter-cyclical than people thought? Yes, because we thought it would be 
totally uncorrelated to inflation, totally uncorrelated to the stock market. Uh, in fact, as a hedge against inflation, that's not proving to be the case. It's kind of rising and falling in concert with the stock market. So, you know, it's an asset class where I think people are still kind of figuring a lot of it out. But, but fundamentally, um, just because there's a big run on terror or even big drops in price for Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever it is, doesn't mean it's going away. How much of it, do, though, do you think, I, I guess one of the questions with crypto is how much of the market is driven by a just kind of like cowboy, let's let's try this, let's tweak the system, let's do thing that... Some of it. I mean, especially when, when you see new tokens take off, that's generally what it is, right? right? Although Terra was specifically designed to be algorithmically linked to, it's a stable coin, so it means it's, it's, it's supposed to be linked to the value of the U.S. dollar, and it would sort of adjust its value based on all kinds of complicated calculations, and then that- Did Terra have a function outside of its affiliation with Luna? That's a thing I didn't understand. Well, Terra, yeah, well. it's, look, it's just, it, there was the leading stable coin, and stable right. coins are sort of designed to pr pr provide some level of certainty to a very uncertain business. Um, but it still- It seems so weird that a crypto currency could be linked to a, uh, yeah, a but the, fiat currency the, value. The reason why is, at least from a regulatory standpoint, to get permission to do things like lend people money on margin or accept deposits or whatever it is, the less and less tangible it is, the harder and harder it is to get done. So if there's some relationship back to the fiat world, you know that, that makes the whole thing a little bit easier. But you know, look, if you, if you believe in crypto like I do, you do have to accept though that this is a conceptually very different thing than other asset classes, which means you're taking more risk, which is by the way, I don't buy and sell coins because I have no idea if they're gonna go up or down on a given day. We, we invest in exchanges, we invest in companies kind of providing infrastructure to crypto and Web3, um, but you know, we invest in blockchain pro pro projects, but you know, crypto itself, yeah, it's super volatile. And by the way, I also don't buy stocks because I have no idea if a stock's gonna go up or down on a given day. So we have a huge last subject. I'm wondering, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going to read the, um, the subject heading. Is capitalism the cause of our discontent? Now, um, should we do a, do, is there a quick sort of piece of that you want to cover? Sure. Or should we, or should we punt, punt that till next week? Well, or how do you feel about it? Now that you've raised the question, I think we at least have to address it. We do? Extent. So is capitalism the cause of our discontent, so, yes so, or no? <laughs> maybe a little more than I would like it to be. <laughs> In the sense of there's still this massive cognitive dissonance between how we feel like we're doing and how we are doing. So there was a CBS YouGov uh, poll released today that had Biden disapproval at 56% and kind of people unhappy with the direction of, company, of the country close to 70%, right? And that feels right. It feels like everything is terrible. And we can easily make a list of everything that is terrible, right? Whether it's gun violence or the opioid epidemic or lack of immigration policy or failing schools or a healthcare system that's not affordable and accessible or crumbling infrastructure, or, you know, climate change and, and so on. Absolutely. At the same time, capitalism, both in this country and globally, with all of its flaws, has produced more good for humanity than any other economic or governance system in history, right? So in terms of uh, kids living in poverty or life expectancy rates or, um, you know, uh, infant mortality or all these, you know, you can go ahead and line sort of 20, 30 of these stats. The world statistically is in the best shape it's ever been by a lot, right? And that's mainly because uh, of market forces, right? Because ultimately the market is a stronger, more effective force than, than human beings running a centralized government because human beings are flawed and corrupt. Um, so that's 
that tends to not work out. So on one hand, like, look, I mean, I'm a proud capitalist. Literally, the, the title of what I do for a living is in it, venture capitalist, right? So um, I believe strongly in it. But, but here's what I just was starting to wonder a little bit, right, which is we have a world that is highly problematic and yet still far more advanced and kind of better overall than the than history, human history has ever been by a lot, right? So we have this, and yet we feel terrible, right? So why? And so the obvious and easy answer is the internet, and, and I guess I got thinking about this when there was a piece by Jonathan Haidt in The Atlantic where he was basically saying the internet has made us incredibly stupid and fallible and everything else. Now, that's something we've talked about many times on, on this podcast. What about that story? I, sometimes when I read stories like that, I, I think of it as sort of a mood affiliation, right? Yeah. Where, where it's like, oh, yeah, I agree with this. Therefore, I'm going to read this so that I get to feel that way. I was more curious to see what his argument w- was going to be as to why people are so unhappy. And, you know, his, conclu- his basic conclusion was the Internet, which I thought wasn't that interesting or thoughtful, but there were a few things in there that at least kind of got me Right, that's what I was going to ask you. What stood so, out so, to you? So the, the thing that stood out to me was he talked about how um, people who live in autocratic societies actually sometimes feel more stability and less insecurity, like China or the UAE or whatever it is, because things are much more settled. Now you have far less freedom and far less rights and far less up, upward mobility and opportunity and everything else, but there is a little bit of certainty, right? So we, if you think about our society, is a society that is definitionally based on uncertainty because the whole point is we have free will, right? And we can try to make our life live the American dream and make our lives what we want it to be. And that's sort of the power of democracy and capitalism and everything else. But at the same time, if you want to look at the the warts, one, capitalism is very much based on the notion of making people feel bad about themselves and that they would only be happy if they were to buy this particular product or service. Basically, every advertisement you see on some level is designed to do that. Everything that's being sold, which means basically every product, every good. Um, now, some of them are, are staples that people really do need to survive, but most of them they don't, right? Um, and yet, they're able to. These companies are able to succeed because they're able to convince people, "Hey, you do need this," right? That's number one. Um, number two is, you know, and Hate was right about this. The internet does a couple of things. One is it, it distorts people's reality. So it turns out that people feel, when you, they think about their own happiness and contentment, it's relative to their peers, right? They're not looking at it saying the, the worst off people in the world, the best off people in the world. It's like, am I the most successful person from my high school class on my block? Whatever it is. And if they are, they feel good. And if, they, and if they're not, they feel like they're falling behind, right? So, you know, the internet, and especially Instagram, creates these completely distorted pictures of people's constant lives. Constant status comparisons, yeah, right? Yeah, constantly status and, and generally untrue. So one is that makes people feel bad. But the other thing, and I think Haight did, did address this, which is the internet's dominated by people on the extremes, right? So all of the public discourse tends to be driven by the far left and the far right on platforms like Twitter, right? So as a result, those groups are unhappy, right? Because you know you only become an extreme because you feel like the status quo is so dangerous that you have to oppose it at any cost, which means definitionally you're a purist and you're not happy with anything. And so because those people tend to dominate the internet and because reporters just kind of follow along with um, whatever they think is the predominant you know, zeitgeist of the moment, um, as a result, they, it, it adds a lot to the cognitive dissonance because it makes people feel a lot worse and that there's a lot more 
disagreement and uncertainty. Whereas, you know, if you actually looked at issues like take guns, based on the polling that I've seen over the past 20 years, 70 percent of this country would say no one should be able to walk into a gun store and walk out with an AK-47 30 minutes later. But they would also say we should not go into people's houses and confiscate the guns that they have in their safes or whatever it is, right? Now, 15% say no one should ever have a gun. 15% would say everyone should always have a gun. But there actually is consensus. But again, as we talked about this podcast a million times, the 70% in the middle don't vote in primaries. And they're also much less vocal on, on places like Twitter. So I, I think there is commonality, but we don't see it because it's obscured by all of the activity online of people who feel like th their views need to be heard and then their views are magnified because reporters say, oh, this per person must be important. And so as a result, there's this sort of false kind of constant distortion of reality that, you know, even when times may actually be pretty good statistically, it feels worse than ever. There's an interesting study that Haid uh, references called the Hidden Tribe Study. And, yeah, and the, that, so yeah. it, it's broken into seven groups. Um, Didn't we and, talk about the, on this once? Did we talk about hidden tribes? I remember reading that study, and I thought we might have. Maybe not. I can't uh, remember. Um, we've talked about it a lot. Yeah. Um, but what's, what, he makes the point that so of the seven groups, yeah. um, the the two most extreme groups on the left and the right um, are the are the richest and the whitest of all the of all seven groups. Yeah, because you can afford to be. Right. So I just I, I, I stood out to me. It was like it, it's interesting that the, that the, it seems to be directly correlated to affluence. But. Yeah. Look, it's, it's very easy to be virulently defund the police, anti-stop and frisk and all of that when you live in neighborhoods that are far more safe and you're, the odds of you being subjected to violence are drastically, drastically lower. When people are trying to make a living, feed their kids, you know, pay the rent, all the basic stuff. Um, they don't really have the time or interest in sort of taking extreme ideological positions. And so that tends to fall to people with a lot more privilege and a lot more time and a lot more freedom, which tend to be wealthier white people. Um, we talked about the bookstore at the uh, top of the, yeah. the podcast. So the store is opening this week, and we're going to have Julie, the bookstore manager, mm -hmm. and running the whole thing. She's going to be on the podcast um, next week. Next week. Yep. Um, and you had one recommendation you wanted to make. Oh, just, you know, cause you had asked me to end every show with a recommendation. I did. Um, the I TV have. show Hacks, have you seen it on no. HBO Max? So no. it's about a comedian, kind of like Joan Rivers type character, older woman, kind of at the tail end of her career, but still, you know, wants to be as famous as ever and still very, very wealthy. And she employs this sort of like, you know, the most Gen Z, stereotypical, like self-absorbed, obsessed, narcissistic uh, young woman who is a writer and helps her write jokes and whatever it is. And it's about their relationship, basically, which is, you know, you have these two wildly flawed people. Um, and yet it's it's funny and it's smart and it's good. It's, it's a half hour show. So uh, that would be my recommendation. And then on the book front, you know, I haven't read anything that great in a while, but I picked up. I'm very excited. Nell Zink is one of my favorite writers, and she has a new book that just came out called Avalon. So uh, You shoplifted it from your own store, I heard. I, I think I can't shoplift if it's all my money in the first place, right? Yeah, Actually, good. Julie did like take a photo of it to create some – we have to create some sort of system so that when I walk in and walk out with a bunch of books, we're aware of at least <laughs> what gonna, This is going to cut into the margin. It's going to be brown. It's kind of the margins. It's going to drive her crazy. But this is like half the reason why I have a bookstore. See you next week, Bradley. See you. Bye.